We are diving into a new sermon series this morning called The Upside Down Kingdom. Last week we wrapped up a two-month series called Created to Worship. And as we approach Easter and we approach the resurrection, the one event that changed the, the course of human history, the one event that turned this world upside down, I want us to start thinking about what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that was ushered in with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what does it mean for us today? You see, the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of God that turned this world upside down, is opposed to the kingdom of this world, is opposed to the kingdom of man. And what I want us to look at for the next few months, especially as we approach the Easter season, is how is the kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom of God, relevant to us today as we learn more about the kingdom of God and how we are to respond to the kingdom of God as citizens of the king. And so we're going to look this morning at the intro to the Sermon on the Mount as it's found in Luke chapter. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 23. Luke 6, 17 through 23. This is the intro to the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the word of God. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Author Andy Crouch, who's written a number of books on culture and society, specifically according to a Christian worldview, did a small experiment several years ago. He went to the website of the Harvard University Library's website, and he researched books with the title, Change the World. From 2000 to 2016 he found that there were over 300 books written on the topic, How to Change the World. Books like The Compass, The Invention That Changed the World, The Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World, Tea, The Drink That Changed the World, Nixon and Mao, The Week That Changed the World, Thermopylae, The War That Changed the World. There was even a book called Nice Girls Don't Change the World. Well, that was between 2000 and 2016, 300 books on how to change the world. So we went a little further. He said, well, let me look at the entire last century from 1900 to 1999. There was 140 books written on how to change the world. Well, then he went a step further and he said, let me find the oldest book ever written, which was 
the 1455 Gutenberg Bible. And he said, from the time the Gutenberg Bible was written all the way to 1899, how many books were written on how to change the world? Can you guess? Zero. None. From 1455 to 1899, zero books were written on how to change the world. From 1900 to 1999, 140. But then all of a sudden, from 2000 to 2016, in just 16 years, we have over 300 books on how to change the world. Andy Crouch's hypothesis? I guess there's a deep interest in our common culture to change the world. Well, what's interesting is, even though there is a resurgence of interest in how to change the world, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who was setting the stage for how to change the world, before it became popular in the last 16 years on how to change the world, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, in ushering in the kingdom of God, was setting the stage 2,000 years ago on how to change the world. You see, what we see here in Luke chapter 6, in the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is introducing this kingdom of God, which is here to not just fine-tune the current kingdom of man, and not just fine-tune the current kingdom of the world, Jesus comes here to totally replace the current kingdom. He says, I am going to change the world. I'm going to go up to a mountain and preach a sermon and gather my people Just as a side note, the mountain was always a place where the revolutionaries hid out. If you wanted to lead a revolution, you never did it in the town square. You went up into the mountains and you hid in the mountains with your people and prepared them for the coming revolution. And the coming revolution of Jesus Christ was to usher in a new kingdom unlike this world had ever seen before. So before it was popular to change the world... Jesus was doing it 2,000 years ago, and he does it by ushering in the kingdom of God. And what I want us to look at this morning as we dive into this idea of the upside-down kingdom, the kingdom that reverses all other kingdoms, the kingdom that replaces all other kingdoms, I want us to look at the three marks of the kingdom of God as it's outlined here in Luke chapter 6. Three marks of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that would turn the kingdom of this world upside down. The first mark of the kingdom of God that we see here are the values and the priorities. We see the pattern of the values and priorities of the kingdom of God. What are the values of this kingdom that God is establishing through the person of Jesus Christ? Well, we find these values in verses 20 through 23. We see values like this in verse 20. Blessed are the poor. Being poor to the ancients was a sign of weakness. But Jesus says, blessed are they. Blessed are you in your weakness. What else does it say? Verse 20. Blessed are the hungry. Not only to be poor was a sign of weakness, but to be hungry was a sign of being unsatisfied. It was a sign of not being comforted. What else do we see? Blessed are those who weep now. Weeping was a sign of failure. Weeping weeping and mourning was a sign that you had lost everything. And then lastly, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you. Blessed exclusion, to be excluded And so what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to say, when I usher in my kingdom, it comes with a whole new set of values and priorities. 
weakness and sacrifice and grief and exclusion. These will be the things that are the values and the priorities and the patterns of the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that he sets these values and priorities up against the values and the priorities of the world. Where do we find the values of the kingdom of the world? In verses 24 through 26. You see, the kingdom of God says, blessed are the poor. But in verse 24, it says, woe to you who are rich. Having wealth was a sign of power. It was the opposite of weakness. But he says, Jesus says, woe to you that find your power and your influence in the things of this world. What else does he say? Woe to you who are full now. Those that find their comfort from the kingdom of this world. Well, he goes a step further. The end of verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now and find their success in the things of this world. You see, laughter was a sign of a, a, a celebratory moment. It's after the celebration. It's after the victory. It's after the worldly success. It causes people to do what? To laugh. And so a sign of laughter in the kingdom of the world was a sign of worldly success. And then at the end, woe to you when all people speak well of you. The opposite of exclusion. He's saying that what the kingdom of this world brings is affirmation and approval. The very opposite of the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is trying to do in verses 20 through 23 is show the paradox of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. That it's not about power and success and laughter and inclusion and approval. Actually, the marks of the kingdom of God is about weakness and grief and suffering and exclusion. You see, Jesus does not usher in the upside-down kingdom and say, I'm just going to add some fine-tuning to the current kingdom. He says, no, the kingdom that I bring in will totally replace the current kingdom of man, will totally replace the kingdom of this world. I think it's interesting that we see the word blessed here. It's important that we understand that the word blessed here in Luke chapter 6 is not synonymous with happy. It is not synonymous with happiness. Day by day, you can be happy, but day by day, you can be unhappy. There are days, if we're all honest, we wake up and we are not happy. You see, happiness is a result of our current circumstances, but blessedness has to do with our position in the kingdom of God. It has to do with our position before God. So there can be days where I'm not happy, but I'm blessed. There are days where I do not experience happiness because of my current circumstances, but my state is one of blessedness, the favor and approval of God. And that's why Jesus says you can say crazy things like this. You can laugh in the midst of weeping. You can rejoice in the midst of exclusion. Only the person that understands that their position in the kingdom of God, blessed with the favor and approval of God, regardless of what today or tomorrow brings, only that person can laugh in the midst of weeping. Only that person can rejoice in the midst of exclusion. Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the people. 
And what he meant by that, he said, when pastors talk about laughing in the midst of weeping and rejoicing in the midst of exclusion, he said, it's the opium of the people because you people give people these ideas and it becomes a crux for people. It it, it becomes something that somehow just subdues their pain and subdues their suffering and their grief, grief, all along promising this future hope, this future promise. But it's just simply subduing the pain. It's somehow just subduing the agony and the grief and the suffering. Religion is the opium of the people. But I wish Karl Marx was here today to hear this. It's not the opium of the people. You see, Christianity is the smelling salts of the people. It's not simply this idea of being blessed through trial, not the idea of being blessed through tribulation and suffering. It's not simply meant to subdue the people, but it's to help them come alive, to be able to say, you can tear everything away from me, but I will rejoice because my life is not dependent on what the kingdom of this world can provide. It is not the opium of the people. It is the smelling salts of the people of God. It allows us to come alive and realize, no, my life and approval and satisfaction and my joy do not come from the kingdom of this world, do not come from the kingdom of man, but it comes from the kingdom of God. So you can tear everything away. I can lose it all and I can still laugh and dance and rejoice in the midst of of suffering and pain and trial. No matter what this world throws at me, I can look up to the heavens and know this is where real life comes from. So the first thing we have to see is how polar opposite the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of this world. Jesus brings in and there is new values and new priorities that mark the kingdom of God. The second thing that marks the kingdom of God is power. Where do we find the power to live out the values of the kingdom of God? Where do we find the power and the source of strength to live out these audacious things like weeping and laughing in the midst of weeping and rejoicing in the midst of exclusion and suffering? Well, we find the power in verse 19. It says, and all the crowd sought to touch him. Why? For power. Power came out from him and healed them all. You see, they understood that the power and the source of strength to find the power to live out the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God was through Jesus and Jesus alone. Why? Because it was Jesus that came and not only gave them these teachings and said, hey, you're on your own now to try to figure it out, but Jesus went a step further and what did he do? He became our great substitute. You see, the kingdom of God not only announces the reversal of all things, it announces the reversal of you. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came down and he took on our grief. He took on our suffering. He took on our mourning. He took on our weeping. So in the midst of trial and pain, we could laugh. He took on our exclusion by being exiled outside of the city gates, even being excluded from God the Father himself so that we could ever be included. You see, Jesus took our place and we took the place of Jesus. Jesus took our place on where? On the cross. He took the place that we deserved and we took his place, the seated at the affirmed, approved right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
We took his place and he took our place. You see, it is gospel substitution leads to kingdom transformation. He takes our place so that there can be a reversal of our priorities and of our values. So now because Jesus took our grief and our suffering and exclusion and our pain and our weakness, we now in response can live out the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God. You can live the reversal of values because you yourself have been reversed. He took our place. So not only do we, do we see here in the upside down kingdom a reversal of values and priorities, not only do we see the power in which we are to live out the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God through Jesus himself, but what's the product? What does this result in? What does this kingdom transformation result in? Well, it's interesting Back in verse 20, it says, blessed are you who are poor. He says it results in a blessed life of being poor. Now, it's interesting, people historically, there are some people historically that have translated this being poor in in the area of monetary wealth. He's talking about a physical poverty. But I think to translate this passage that way, does not do the passage justice. In fact, we read in the other account of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we see it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, I don't think Jesus was just talking about a physical poverty. I think he was talking about a spiritual bankruptcy. And this is what I mean. Jesus is saying when, when the kingdom of God becomes manifest in your life, when it becomes a reality and the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God become a reality in your life and you understand the power in which Jesus brings to your life, it produces a bankruptcy of spirit. What do I mean by that? It means that when I stand before God, I say I have nothing. My time is not my own. My money is not my own. My talent is not my own. Anything that I thought I possessed really is all because of God. You see, what the kingdom of God does when it's manifested in our life, this upside-down kingdom, it creates a humility, an extreme humility, extreme generosity, where I realize I have nothing before God except for the riches of his mercy and of his grace. That means when I'm asked to serve the kingdom of God, I'm no longer looking at my watch going, uh, my, my time is of the essence. You're on my time. It's my time you're infringing on. When you're asked to give to support the kingdom of God, you no longer say, hey, giving to the kingdom of God does not fit into my monthly P&L. It does not fit into my monthly budget. It means when you are asked to serve in any capacity that you can now say, well, they're taking advantage of my talent and of my gift because that talent and gift does not belong to you. It belongs to God himself. It means that when the kingdom of God transforms your life, it produces the most generous people on the face of this earth. Extreme generosity with your time, with your talent, and with your treasure. What happened in Acts chapter 2? What happened when the kingdom of God became a reality for the early church? They met once a week? No, it says they met every day. In all of their homes, they gathered together and they were so generous with their time and with their wealth and with their talents, it said nobody had any needs. 
the product is extreme generosity where you realize and you're able to admit, I have nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt apart from the riches of Christ's kingdom and of his mercy in my life. There was a pastor who was leading a prayer meeting and he was talking about this very thing. He was talking about the kingdom of God and its transforming power. And he was saying things like, we just don't believe this. And you don't believe enough. And we don't pray enough as a church. And, and the kingdom of God has the power to transform your sickness and your illness in this church. And, and prayer has the ability to uh, uh, revive this community and this nation. He's talking about the, the power of the kingdom of God and a young man stands up in the back and he points at the pastor and he says, pastor, and you don't believe it either. And the pastor was cut to the heart because he was honest with himself. He had been in the ministry long enough that he had grown cynical and that even he had begun, began to doubt the power, the transforming power of the gospel of the kingdom of God and he drives home dejected. And as he's driving home, he passes by a local bar that he knew the, 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 the local motorcycle gang hung out on Sundays. And he pulls into the bar and he says, that's it, God. We're going to put this to the test right here and now. And he walks into this bar and he's confronted with this motorcycle gang. And you can imagine the look on their face. And this pastor starts to go around and sharing the gospel with them, and how Jesus loves them, and how their life can forever be changed. Well, they didn't beat him, but they laughed at him. And the pastor walks out. A week later, the pastor has a knock on his door, and standing six foot seven over him is the leader of the motorcycle gang. And he says, I'm here to do business with Jesus, but I gotta know all of the things you said that Jesus did for me, is it really true? I said, absolutely. And when you said that Jesus could love me, is that true? I said, you better believe it. The leader of the motorcycle gang committed his life to Christ that night. A month later, he enrolled in seminary. A month later, he started a Saturday morning Bible study with 100 members of that motorcycle gang. And to this day, he is now a pastor in our denomination. And so you cannot tell me that you do not believe in the power of the transforming work of the kingdom of God. It is an upside-down kingdom. And the power of the upside-down kingdom doesn't just reverse all things. It reverses you. It reverses me. If you're here this morning and you have never experienced the overwhelming power of the love of Jesus Christ, then he can reverse your life today. That he can take your place, the place that you deserve and your punishment, and your sin, and your shame, so that you could forever experience what it means to be a favored son or daughter of the king. Allow that king to come into your life this morning so that your life might never be the same, so that when you stand before God one day, the only thing you can say is nothing in my hand I bring, 
but only to the cross of Christ I cling.